In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I couldn't have timed that cell phone uh, more uh, appropriately because I think it distracted from all of my mispronunciations um, of what seemed like all the new names of the new COVID variants that I just had to read to you. So, in, um, in my 38 years on this planet, there have only been two moments in my life where I felt um, the need or the necessity to call a family meeting. I don't have time this morning to share both of these stories in their entirety, uh, but the, the first time I was about 16 years old and uh, publicly in my family and friends and school, uh, I had talked about that I wanted to become an architect. In fact, I had just uh, enrolled uh, in my first drafting class in high school, and this was the story that I was saying to other people, but internally, I was already beginning to discern this calling towards ministry. And one day at school, happened in an interaction with some friends, and I could not resist it any longer. And I went home that evening, and I called a family meeting with my parents. And I'm, I'm not really sure what I was expecting, just that I was going to tell them that I felt that I was called to be a pastor. And um, again, I don't know what I was expecting to happen. I, I, I don't know if uh, I was expecting them to be shocked. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if I was expecting them to throw a parade and pat me on the back. Yes, son, you are making the right decision. Uh, But my parents responded in really the best way possible. They basically said, if this is what you feel like you're supposed to do, then you have our support. And if later you change your mind and take a new direction, we're still going to support you no matter what. It put absolutely no pressure on me, right? It gave me the opportunity to continue to discern what God was doing in my life at that time and what God would continue to do in my life without any type of expectation or pressure from my family system to become a certain kind of thing. I still very much appreciate that moment in my life because it's helped me to know how to respond when other people come to me with big sweeping declarations about what they will do with their life. The next moment uh, that, that also represented a type of uh, paradigm shift for me happened about five years later. At this point, I had went away to Southeastern University. I had studied to be a pastor. I had taken my first job as a youth minister. I was considering going back to school, to divinity school, uh, to get even more uh, education. And I found myself, once again, privately being challenged that the vision and picture of God that I had inherited as a child was no longer practically working uh, in the way that I was living my life. The world seemed at odds. My experience of living seemed at odds with the picture of God that I had been giving, and I entered into a stage of a crisis of faith. Not a crisis of faith that God existed, but a crisis of faith telling me that the type of God I had once believed in might not have been the complete and total picture. And so once again, I came home and I sat my parents down. At this point, I had lived away, uh, but I was staying with them for a period of time. And I told them, 
mom, dad, I love you, and I thank you so much for the investment that you have made in my life, and I just need you to know that I'm abandoning basically all of my faith except for two things. There's only two things I believe that I can hold to be true in this moment, and the first is, is there is a God that loves us, and number two, that love sent Jesus into the world, and everything else I'm going to shelf for this time until it holds and proves to be true. The wonderful thing is that my parents once again responded with total support, but I could tell this time that they were worried. Because when you give up your faith, at least a portion of your faith, you are giving up something that the people who have invested in your life have given to you. And it changes their way of being in the world as well. And so this first paradigm shift was about discernment. But the second paradigm shift was about deconstruction. And so let me just pause here for a moment for a brief commercial. All of us, all of us need to participate in deconstruction. Your faith is not supposed to be a monument that you inherit from the people that you love from their life experience and never change. Your faith is not supposed to be an unmovable object that always remains the same as the way that whoever gave it to you, uh, it's not supposed to just stay there unchanged, but our faith becomes stronger by deconstructing and questioning and challenging it and by realizing that the way that we are living out our faith in our actual practical lives might stop working at some point. And if we are not careful, and if our faith goes uninvestigated, we might just find that the way that we believe actually ends up harming ourselves, and even worse, causes us to live in such a way where we begin to harm other people. And so deconstruction is good and healthy, and we should do that together, because it makes us stronger as a community. Now, back to our regular broadcast. So I was having these two moments, and I think about these two moments each and every time I read the story of John the Baptist in the Gospels, because John also had two moments similar to this. His first moment of calling and discernment happened before he was even born. An angel appears to his father, Zechariah, and tells him that they will have a baby and that this baby will be the voice that was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah, the voice crying out in the wilderness. And there's a whole other story there too that I don't have time to get into this morning, but I have to imagine that as Zechariah and Elizabeth begin to ponder the words of this angel, they must have become excited to know that the Messiah that their whole people had been waiting for, that their son was going to play an important part in his announcing and his preparation. And then John was born. And I wonder how regular things were for a while. I wonder if John dressed the same way as the other school children in the beginning. I wonder if he participated in all of the same after-school activities as the other children. I wonder if he had dreams of doing something normal, like becoming an architect and taking his first drafting class. I don't know what this looked like for John, but I do know that at some point, his life began to change. And John changed his regular normal clothes for animal skins. 
and his hair grew long and wild, and maybe his eyes did a little bit too, and he gave up his normal diet, and he started to eat honey and locusts, and he went out into the wilderness, and I have to wonder if Elizabeth and Zechariah thought, was this all a mistake? Was this not the promise? Is our son running away from the calling of God? Is he avoiding this true thing? Or is this what God was promising? Because when John begins to make these decisions, he doesn't make them in a vacuum or in isolation. But his living out the calling of God affects his whole family. And you have to wonder if the neighbors begun to talk and spread rumors and wondered if John had gotten off his rocker. But there John was out in the wilderness, outside of the city there at the Jordan, baptizing people. Why is this important? The ways in which we structure our societies matter. And again, we may lose this in our reading as modern people. I want you to think about the tabernacle or the temple. Maybe you've heard someone preach or teach on this before. But the way that the temple or the tabernacle was set up is there was an outer court, there was a holy place, and then there was the holy of holies. The outer court anyone could go to, the holy place became a little bit more exclusive. You needed preparation to be in there. And then the holy of holies, only one priest would go in per year to offer a sacrifice. And when they would go in, they would have bells attached to the bottom of their robes and a rope tied around their feet because they were about to have a face-to-face -face interaction with God and they just might die if they weren't ready to go before the Lord. And so if those bells stopped ringing, they would begin to pull the rope and pull that priest out of there. The ways that their society was ordered was also like the temple or the tabernacle. The temple existed in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was the center of that society. And as you moved out further into Israel, away from Jerusalem, you moved further away in proximity to, to God. And then once you finally got outside of Israel, you were in the land of the Gentiles, and you were really far away from God at that point. Holiness code, when people would break that code or they would become unclean for whatever reason. Part of the prescription was for them to go outside of the city. They would stay in these camps in order to allow a certain amount of time to pass so that they could be cleansed and be ready to come back into proximity with God. Why am I telling you all this? Because when the prophet Isaiah prophesied about a voice crying out in the wilderness, and when Zechariah and Elizabeth were promised that their son would be this voice, and when John raised up a wild man in animal clothes, eating a wild diet out in the wilderness, this was not the place where people expected the Messiah to come from. The Messiah was supposed to come from the center the Messiah was supposed to come from the place where there was privilege and power and blessing and was supposed to be a king or a warrior. The Messiah was supposed to visually look like the Messiah, and this was not what happened. It was the exact opposite. 
And I shared this with our adult Bible study. It will meet on Tuesdays at 1.30 if you want to join us. A couple of weeks ago, lots of commercials today, but there are three places, three areas in the Bible that represent great danger. The first is darkness. This was a place without electricity or lights other than candles or the sun. And so when darkness would fall, you didn't want to be outside of the city gates or someplace not near where there would be light because there was danger. And then there was the open water. So the sea or the ocean, uh, they didn't have depth finders or modern boats. They had rickety wooden crafts. And you will read in the gospel stories the fear that overcomes veteran fishermen because on the water when a storm would come, this represented chaos and they literally did not know if they would survive this moment. They just might die. Darkness, open water, and the third, perhaps most mentioned, dangerous place in the Bible is the wilderness. To go outside of the city gates to leave behind the protections and comfort of society, to be outside, away from proximity with God. This was a place of discomfort and of danger and of risk. And this is when God sent a voice into the world to prepare the coming of the king. This was exactly the place that voice would cry out. So in this second Sunday of Advent, May we be aware that when God speaks to us, it doesn't come from the comfortable places or the places that we expect. It doesn't come from the places with power or privilege or wealth or blessing or whatever we imagine surplus or prosperity to be. It comes from the margins. It comes from the wilderness, the dangerous places, the places that we don't expect. And if we are not ready and expecting, which is what Advent is about, we just might miss the voice of God calling us in this moment. Because Christ comes back every single day through the church. And will our hearts and minds and ears and eyes be ready to see the coming of God, to hear the voice of God calling out from the unexpected place, and to be the unexpected people who God is calling in this moment, at this time, to do the mission of God, which is raising up his kingdom in the here and the now. May our eyes be open. May our ears be open. And may our hearts and minds be ready to hear that voice crying out from the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Amen. Amen.